0: Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we
1: and our guests discuss relevant and health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by CMF Curo. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org.
0: Live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us again will be Dr. Paul Sieslak, infectious disease specialist, public health physician for the Oregon State Health Authority. He actually has expertise in the area of vaccinations, but we're going to talk about new viruses that are in the news, not spelled SARS-CoV-2. And in fact, I'm thinking of calling this episode Viruses in the News, something old, something new. Nothing Borrowed. Should We Be Blue? And he's going to answer questions about that. But before we get to that, um, what makes this important to cover, Andrew? Virals, viral diseases that are not the one we've been inundated with the last few years. You know, I
1: don't know if anybody else feels this way, but it's just the fatigue, the COVID fatigue. People are still talking about the COVID and not to make Uh-oh. it light. Like, you know, I've been there too. Every, It's very serious at times, but uh, I I don't know if I'm ready for the next pandemic. I, I, it's like having two vacations too close together. I mean, neither of <laughs> them are fun. You just want to rest, you know? And right. uh, the people are talking about the monkeypox pox pandemic. Um, I don't know. There's no I, pandemic
0: I, of monkey backs. There's no pandemic. <laughs> I,
1: I, I'm wondering if all the news stations, they just got so many like canned things now that it's hard to get off the virus train but uh yeah I don't know I'm I'm not ready for the next pandemic myself but it's in the news we got to talk about it cuz people are saying what's going on here I had a guy not too long ago who came to me a little bit distraught this was a week or two ago said yeah I went to the urgent care and they said I had poison ivy then they called me at home and said no I have monkeypox I said well that person just got an email saying that you should watch for monkeypox and they remembered you and uh sure enough it was not monkeypox no way no. Jose But uh, the poor guy was scared to death. He's like, I don't know where I got it. And actually, that's one of the things we kind of wanted to talk about, Tom. You've you've done some digging because you used to be in bio-warfare research, right?
0: Yeah. Back in the early 90s, I worked at a place called the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Disease. And while we research infectious diseases, one of the main purposes for the military, not only to keep soldiers healthy and safe, but also to prevent... Um, harm from a, a potential biologic warfare attack, and and so back in the 80s and 90s, they evaluated. You know, could monkeypox be an agent? So back in 1997, the uh, U.S. Army came out with its first textbook on a uh, medical response to biological warfare agents. And then they came up with one again in 2018. And in the 1997 version, I actually was the first author on the chapter on plague, the black death, something you Ooh-hoo. don't bring up in a uh, polite conversation at cocktail parties. Not, <laughs> Is that what you know do like at cocktail like, parties,
1: Tom? I don't <laughs> know if I've ever been
0: to a cocktail party. So darn it, so I've never brought it up there. Uh, but anyway, that book had two paragraphs On monkeypox. And it was in the same chapter as smallpox, which has been eradicated from the planet because there's no animal vectors. All of the diseases, well, some of the diseases we're going to talk about, like monkeypox, have animal vectors. They carry it. So we'll never be able to eradicate it from the the planet. And people always were
1: worried about smallpox because since it's been eradicated, so many people don't have immunity, right? So it could be a biologic weapon
0: of some kind. Right. And it can spread very well from person to person, probably better than monkeypox. In fact, that's one of the things this chapter said back then in the two paragraphs, was that clinically, it's often indistinguishable from smallpox, you know, these little Uh, blisters that can become full of pus and kind of have a pressed in dimple in the middle, more on the palms, the head, and the soles than centrally on the body. And at that time, they thought that squirrels carried monkeypox, but it wasn't as easy to spread from person to person. Only about um, 30% would spread from one person to another. So it wouldn't maintain itself in a population like smallpox. So back in 97, they thought, eh, not really a risk. Any country is going to use this. Then we come to the 2018 edition. I'm still writing about the Black Death there. Yeah, if you play a song well, keep playing it. But in this, (laughs) when I was looking yesterday at that edition, one of the authors of a chapter on taking care of biologic warfare um, patients is none other than Ted Seaslack, the brother in an infectious disease specials, just like our guest tonight, Paul Seaslack. So we get to give a shout out to Ted, who I met while I was giving talks at USAMRID. But in this-
1: Were um, they at
0: TED Talks? Always, always. He, he, was, <laughs> he was cool before TED Talks were cool. So uh, what changes occurred in 21 years on monkeypox? Well, instead of two paragraphs, it got- five paragraphs. And it said there was mm. one one distinguishing feature with monkeypox was that you'd get really big lymph nodes in the neck uh, and less commonly in the armpits or in the groin. So more swollen lymph nodes with uh, monkeypox. And there were, sometimes it didn't look exactly like smallpox. It would be more limited than uh, smallpox. And the U.S. had its first outbreak of monkeypox 19 years ago in uh, 2003, but most of the cases, and at that time, there were 78 cases in the US, and 19 of them required hospitalization, and there were no deaths back then. Um, but the cases since the 1980s, so in the last four years, have increased about 20 times in Central Africa, particularly the Democratic Republic of uh, the Congo. So, and the fatality rate uh, is worst among younger patients. And among those, unvaccinated. So so those of you with the old smallpox scar, uh, probably about 85% protection, according to these textbooks, against monkeypox. Oh, wow. That's really good. Yeah, I, I think that's pretty cool. So um, that's what we knew about monkeypox. And the reason I bring it up is, okay, what did we know about it before this? And how is that being introduced in the news. does it look like a different disease? and we're gonna let Paul sees like do that. That's his thunder, not ours.
1: yeah, it's it's one of those things they're talking about it and people are always wondering, am I at risk? you know, how is it transmitted? I don't think I'm at risk. Um, do I actually have to worry about this or is this just kind of a symptom of nothing else
0: more interesting in the news cycle? And Paul's gets to answer those excellent questions, Andrew. but before that, our medical trivia question of the day in the category is zoonotic diseases. So, zoonotic, like zoology, refers to diseases that animals carry that humans can catch.
1: Oh, I always so, said
0: zoonotic. Uh, it you probably could be o o. I like
1: yeah. it, it looks it, like it, zoo,
0: it does look like zoo. Zoonotic, then you pronounce each oh, zoonotic, whatever. They're, they're <laughs> probably variants, or I'm probably wrong. No, you're probably right. I'm I'm probably wrong, but I like it. (laughs) So as I'm feeling generous, this question will be a multiple choice question. So which of the following human infections is not considered a zoonotic disease? In other words, which of these is not an infection that initially or currently spreads from animals to humans? A. COVID-19 B. Lyme disease C. Rabies D-plague or E-influenza type B. We'll have the answer to this at the end of the show, but before that, we'll have uh, Paul Cieslack and new viruses in the news here on Dr. Doctor, Doctor. Welcome to our guest interview today with Dr. Paul Seeslach of the Oregon Health Authority, where he is the medical director for the Communicable Disease and Immunizations portion of the public health division. He is a specialist in infectious disease. He has a lovely wife and family. He's been on Dr. Doctor before. Thank you for returning with us, Paul Seeslak.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Tom.
0: So this show, well, let's start with the something old. The something old that's actually new is monkeypox. And we're going to get into what's new about it uh, I already went through what's old about it, what we knew. So, Paul, ignoring the COVID pandemic, which most of us would love to do, are you surprised by the amount of coverage viral diseases have been getting on national news the past several weeks?
2: Well, it's it's been a lot, but uh, I have to say, given the circumstances, no, I'm not surprised. People are generally very interested in health related information, you know, even at baseline. Uh, if you watched a nightly news show, you would you would typically see several minutes of coverage about health issues. And when you have something new and exotic like this, and wow, it's spreading, and the World Health Organization has declared an emergency, uh, it doesn't surprise me that people get interested.
0: Well, Paul, monkeypox was originally described in lab monkeys back in 1958, first human case in 1970. Before this summer, what was the extent of your knowledge about monkeypox? Uh,
2: very little. Uh, there was an outbreak in the United States in 2003 in the Upper Midwest, associated with uh, imported Gambian rats, and uh, I remember learning about it. <laughs> Wait a, a minute. Why ago. would
0: anybody import Gambian rats?
2: Uh, I, I don't know why people would import. Especially Gambian in the
0: Midwest tr- here. Okay. Anyway. <laughs>
1: Uh,
2: Right. It was in the upper Midwest. And uh, we learned that prairie dogs could be a reservoir for monkeypox. And uh, I remember being horrified at the prospect of uh, of monkeypox virus being resident in the prairie dog population of the United States. I remember uh, going through South Dakota once and they had a prairie dog city. And I remember- Yes, I've been there. (laughs) Right. So uh, I, I certainly didn't want that to happen and was relieved when uh, the outbreak seemed to be
0: extinguished. Well, especially if they were co-infected with uh, bubonic plague, the Black Death.
2: Well, you know, rodents in the uh, in many states of the United States, certainly including Oregon, uh, are, carry bubonic plague, and we get a case or two now and then. Uh, New Mexico is the big uh, yes. epicenter for plague in it the is. United States.
0: It
1: is. It makes me appreciate how they used to name viruses like monkeypox that's so much easier than SARS-CoV-2, you know, COVID, <laughs> like it's in the monkey, it's a pox. We got it. So you know,
2: there's a long history of naming things like that or naming them after the location where they're first identified.
1: Yes, see Lost there you here. go. So I know Paul, you're familiar with what we covered about monkeypox in the introduction. Some of some of the history there. What has changed so that the World Health Organization declared monkeypox a global health emergency on January twenty or July twenty third, rather of this year?
2: Well, the the shortest way to say it is that it was being seen in large numbers in countries in which it hadn't historically been seen. Uh, it had uh, traditionally been seen in Africa. There are two clades of the virus, uh, you know, in uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. And that's where we thought of monkeypox being associated. But when it broke out in Spain and Portugal and spread to other countries of Europe, uh, that's what got people's attention. And then the other thing is that uh, instead of being acquired directly from animals, uh, in this case, it was being clearly spread person to person and predominantly among gay men.
0: Yeah. So tell us some more about that. How is the transmission of this outbreak different than any prior outbreak? And how do you think that's being covered in the mainstream media?
2: Well, it's interesting, right? The um, Again, the, the previous monkeypox was usually acquired uh, mostly among children who had contact with animals, infected rodents, uh, sometimes eating bushmeat uh, in Africa. And then occasionally there would be a case in a traveler or something like that. Uh, but in this case... Um, we were seeing monkeypox spread among networks of men having sex with men, uh, sometimes at uh, big parties where uh, people were having many sexual contacts in a given night. And um, and the lesions, in, uh, instead of sort of having a more widespread distribution through the body, uh, were often on the, the genitals, often on the penis or in the perianal area. And, and that's very unusual and sort of bespeaks uh, transmission during sex.
1: So how, how come this is not kind of uh, on on the news, so to speak? I, I had a patient come in and he was shocked that someone thought he might have monkey pox. And he he more said, you know, I don't think I'm at risk for this. Of course, the provider at the walk-in clinic didn't think about that at all. I just think I had a few lesions, um, ended up being poison ivy. But... Still, why why is nobody covering this angle of it that many people might not even be at risk?
2: Right. I, th- I think there is a reluctance to uh, come out and, and name a group as having an infection, a group that many in public health already consider marginalized, uh, that is men who have sex with men. Uh, and in addition, there is some skepticism that if we say this is being transmitted during sex, uh, mostly among gay men. Uh, skepticism that gay men are going to alter their sexual practices. And then finally, because we, in public health, need to reach out to gay men uh, in order to, to protect them, uh, their desire, there's a desire to maintain good relationships with people uh, in that community, with public health and the gay population, so that uh, messaging, for example, around uh, vaccination will be heard and, and acted upon. Uh, you know, I agree in general that um, we should be, you know, very explicit and just the facts, ma'am, and this disease is being transmitted uh, primarily among gay men. Uh, it is true that, you know, susceptibility to monkeypox is, is universal. I mean, anybody could theoretically get infected if they had the right kind of exposure. Uh, but the fact of this particular outbreak is that it's, it's almost exclusively gay men.
1: So is, so, is monkeypox an STD? I mean, is it something that if you, if you go to a baseball game and you're sitting next to somebody with monkeypox, could you get it there or does it have to be more intimate than that?
2: Well, we think in this outbreak anyway, that it has to be more intimate than that. Now, uh, if you go back to, you know, where monkeypox originated, occasionally there was transmission within households. Uh, We know that it can be shed in the respiratory tract that is in, you know, the uh, mucus of the nose and throat. So theoretically, it could be spread by the droplet route. But we really haven't been seeing that. Um, there, there is an occasional household contact in this uh, outbreak uh, that has been infected, but overwhelmingly it has been you know people who have had direct physical skin-to-skin contact with each other uh, during the course of sex. Uh, I have seen some in public health trying to draw a distinction between uh, a sexually transmitted disease, which they would define as being something where the virus or the bacterium is present in semen or in vaginal fluid, uh, so sexually transmitted disease and and sexually transmissible—that is, able to be transmitted. Uh, I confess that I don't quite get the distinction. Um, you know, in fact, we, we think that this uh, monkeypox is being spread in this in this outbreak basically the same way syphilis is spread. Uh, you know, in syphilis, you have a chancre, uh, a oh, skin sure. lesion. On, on the penis or, or in the vagina. And, uh, you know, during sexual contact, the genitals rubbing against that infected lesion, which is teeming with the bacterium that causes syphilis, treponema pallidum, right. uh, and is uh, spread to the skin of the next person. Uh, and and so I think uh, in, this, in this particular circumstance, monkeypox is, is largely being spread by that same mechanism, skin-to-skin contact during sex.
0: So Paul, we remember, About 40 years ago, we were just getting into medicine or college, uh, an outbreak of another disease among men having sex with men. How is this monkeypox similar or different to the first reports of HIV back in the early 80s?
2: Uh, You know there are similarities because uh, you know men who have sex with men uh, were were one of the primary groups that were affected. I I would say the big difference is that um, HIV was also uh, substantially Uh, bloodborne. So injection drug users who shared needles among each other, you know, it's in the vein of one person picks up the virus, goes into the vein of another person. Uh, There was a lot of spread that way, Mm -hmm. and um, because of that. You know uh it it was in people's blood uh blood supplies could get contaminated and um you know at the time they were saying that gay men should not be donating blood uh i i recall that one of the big groups of people affected during uh, the hiv pandemic um in the 1980s and maybe even into the 1990s uh, were were people with hemophilia because People with hemophilia lack clotting factors in order to stop them from, you know, having big bleeding episodes or even bleeding to death they would get regular injections of clotting factors and those clotting factors were were came from the pooled serum of maybe a couple of hundred people and they would need to get these clotting factor injections pretty regularly so mm-hmm. ultimately they were being exposed to the blood of hundreds and hundreds of people and it was devastating to the yes population of people with hemophilia, I've seen estimates that 75% uh, eventually um, succumb to AIDS. Wow.
0: So, Paul, do you think if the transmission of monkeypox today was different, that the World Health Organization would still have declared this an international emergency?
2: I I think so. I mean, you know, in a sense, uh, this is a means of transmission that should be you know, easier to contain than for example, respiratory droplet transmission. Uh, And we think that most of the transmission is happening while people have symptoms, so that there's not a big pre-infectious period of contagion, so that in general, people know. Uh, That said, you know we're hearing that in in this particular circumstance a lot of the lesions can be small and mild and maybe even unrecognized and uh, so there is some potential for people to transmit before they know they have it uh, but but not as much i think as with most respiratory droplet diseases
1: what well, what is the benefit of declaring such an emergency in in this situation what what happens when somebody says it's an emergency <laughs> You know, clearly I, mean, I they, I'm thinking of Michael Scott in the office. I don't know if you guys ever watched that. He <laughs> declared bankruptcy by just shouting it to everybody else in the yeah. office.
2: <laughs> I declare it, yes. <laughs> I,
1: I don't know if you declare this is an emergency. What What does that mean? What happens now?
2: Yeah, well, uh, you know, clearly it gets people's attention, and including the attention of uh, public health officials around the world and of uh of policymakers who can who can allocate funding to to try to address the emergency. I don't know whether WHO itself gets any particular additional authority. You know, their their authority is largely based on on um, you know their uh, their credentials I mean they they collect the data for the world and they have a an eye to what's going on globally uh, in a way that you know many of us don't uh, but but I don't know whether they get any additional authority I think it's mainly the public attention that's drawn to it
0: so Paul um, our good friend Paul Carson texted me yesterday knowing we were going to do this episode and something about a dr. Don Weiss a public health officer in New York City was abruptly transferred to um, when he uh, told his boss that suggesting in public health messaging that having sex while infected with monkeypox could be made safer, people avoided um, uh, and, and covered their sores while having sex. He argued that was unreasonable, that infected individuals should abstain for a time limit. Why would somebody like that be, why would this be bad for a public health officer to do? What do you think was going on there?
2: Uh, well, you know the, the the obvious answer is that uh, he, you know went went uh, askew from what his organization was mandating. And you know he he kind of, you know, went out on his own and 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 made this recommendation in in an open letter to the New York Times. Uh, I happen to agree with a lot of what he said. I, I think that um, that messaging should include, Uh, you know, abstain from sex. Certainly, if you know you have um, monkeypox, because I I do think it's it's pretty difficult to to have sex while covering your skin Uh, and So, so I, I, I happen to agree with that point. And, and an additional point, I would say, you know, advice to gay men to at least reduce their number of sexual partners uh, could go a long way toward reducing transmission, at least while we get people vaccinated. Um, but basically, you know, he, he was bucking the uh, official policy of his agency and, and uh, it got him into trouble. But, but I, I agree with a lot of what he had to say.
1: So, how how serious it would it be if somebody got monkeypox? If one of our listeners contracted it, what what do they do? Is this a big deal? Is it a small deal? How should we think of that?
2: Well, you know, there is the possibility for a more serious infection spreading to the lungs, uh, but the vast majority of people seem to do well. Um, In the New England Journal article that reviewed cases in several Western European countries recently, uh, they said that 13% of identified cases uh, were hospitalized. And the main reasons that they landed in the hospital was, first of all, for pain control. So these Mm -hmm. lesions can be very painful. And uh, I've heard uh, stories of men with a lot of lesions on the penis who could not urinate because it was so painful to urinate or perianal lesions, and they could not defecate uh, for that reason. So that's pain control was the main reason uh, for being admitted to the hospital. And the second reason was uh, what we call secondary bacterial infection. So, you know, if you're if you're rubbing it or scraping it and there's any break in the skin and the wrong kind of bacteria get in there, you know, staph or strep especially, uh, then you know you can you can develop a nasty infection from that. So those those two things, pain control and secondary bacterial infection, were were the main causes for hospitalization.
1: Well and and I see some stuff in the news about monkeypox vaccines. Uh, is this something that people need to be thinking about or only if they're, you know, if they consider themselves high risk? How should we think about that?
2: Yes, I I think it's really for high risk people. And in fact, there isn't enough vaccine to vaccinate everybody, uh, nor would I think the, you know, most people get any benefit from it. Um, We're targeting vaccine primarily at gay men and uh, primarily at at those who uh, have, you know, have sex with multiple people. So the the strategy is to make sure that clinics that see patients with sexually transmitted diseases uh, have the vaccine and can vaccinate people with sexually transmitted diseases. Um, People with multiple sexual partners, uh, HIV clinics, um, tend to see a lot of men who have sex with men and, and sex with multiple partners, uh, so those are those are really our target areas. Uh, there's some notion that uh, laboratory workers who are being asked to test a lot of specimens for uh, monkeypox may be another target for uh, vaccination, and. Um, and there may be other occupational exposures although i think most of us in healthcare have very little to worry about you know we're we're usually wearing gloves when we're examining patients and and that recommendation should certainly be reinforced
0: so paul we've been talking about some practices here that uh, you know uh, someone trying to follow the way catholics want to live uh, would not be doing you know how do you uh, how do you speak to the someone in public health is trying to take care of people who are sick and yet live a life as a as an authentic catholic
2: right uh you you know it's it's difficult when you're talking to people who don't share the catholic faith and and trying to convince them especially if they have no grounding in in catholic morality but obviously you know for catholics for whom sex is uh, a sacred thing reserved to uh, marriage between a man and a woman. You know, they're, they're only having monogamous relationships and they are at zero risk for any sexually transmitted infection, much less uh, monkeypox. It uh, becomes a little more difficult to deal with when, when you're talking with someone who shares none of those uh, foundational right. beliefs. And, you know, you end up talking about protecting your health by reducing the number of sexual contacts. And I think most people can, can understand that uh, you know this is how sexually transmitted diseases are spread, and the more people you have sex with, the, the riskier you are. But, but if you're uh, a Catholic living a chastity as, as we're taught to do, uh, you're not going to get this
0: infection. And on that note, we're going to take a break here on Dr. Doctor and be back with more in just a moment.
1: And we are back with Dr. Doctor talking today to Dr. Paul Cieslak about all these viruses, not COVID, in the news. And so we are done with the monkeypox. Thank goodness, I hope. Uh, (laughs) And he can't say anything for sure. Here we are. The next one is polio. So I was surprised to see an article not long ago that polio is making a comeback, both stateside in New York, but also in London, how can this be if the U.K. was declared polio-free in 2003? and the U.S., We I don't think we've had a case since 2013. What does this mean for polio to be coming back?
2: Right. It's it's actually very discouraging for, for public health people because we were on the verge of eradicating polio from the globe, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago, and uh, we were never able to close the deal. Uh, there remained spots within uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan, primarily, uh, where polio kept circulating because it became very difficult to get vaccine into areas where there was a lot of conflict, and uh, and so the virus continued to to spread. Um, and then uh, we had some of these, you know, the oral polio vaccine is a is a live vaccine, a live attenuated vaccine. We've long known that. Occasionally, one of the strains in the vaccine can revert to a virulent form and cause paralytic polio. They call it vaccine-associated paralytic polio. And in the United States, back in the year 2000, we stopped using the live attenuated oral polio vaccine, OPV, uh, because of that occasional case of vaccine-associated paralytic polio. The estimated risk for that was about one out of every 2.4 million doses. Uh, it's a three-dose series in childhood, so uh, it was usually the first dose that caused it, and it was about one out of every 800,000 first doses administered. But we had had no polio in the United States for some time, and therefore, the uh, we decided to stop using oral polio vaccine and start using the uh, killed, inactivated polio vaccine, and we got rid of that risk. But other areas of the world were still using the oral polio vaccine, and uh, they started having circulating vaccine-derived polio virus. And so Mm. that's actually one of the the main causes uh, worldwide. And you know, because we never closed the deal, the viruses are still out there, and they can, you know, travel across the globe on an airplane flight, and then uh, be spread to anybody who doesn't have immunity. And you know, not not everybody was vaccinated. There is some susceptibility, and uh, immunity wanes over time. Uh, there, and so uh, we can see we can see polio still even in developed countries.
0: So, Paul, is it? of concern whether or not somebody has this vaccine-associated polio versus just the wild type polio that was never in a vaccine, or doesn't it matter?
2: Well, I don't think it matters too much. If it has reverted to a virulent strain, then it is dangerous. Uh, The way you stop it is the same way as you stop the wild type. You you vaccinate people against it, and then they're going to be immune to it.
0: So what do we know about this New York outbreak, and what's the big deal about sewage and viruses?
2: well uh, you know my understanding is that they just have a you know a single case in uh, new york right. uh, in a county adjacent to new york city and uh, so a single case but the wastewater testing that they're doing has demonstrated that there is some circulation of poliovirus within the city. Now, remember that only about 1 in 200 people who's infected with polio virus is going to come down with paralytic polio. It's it's uh, you know the rare person. Most people just have a, have no illness or have a milder illness. So there may be other infected people out there who didn't get paralyzed by it. The wastewater testing is very interesting. Uh, we started doing it in Oregon uh, with COVID-19 because we got funding to do it and and we started testing wastewater around the state. But it's a way to test uh, thousands of people at the same time, right, because all the wastewater goes into a single place. And with the very sensitive nucleic acid tests that they have nowadays, you know, they can detect very small quantities of it, uh, you know, and you're testing, you're essentially testing a population. And it's not, doesn't have to be the population that gets sick. So you can find people without symptoms who are putting it into the waste stream, uh, or people who don't go to the doctor and get tested, you know. So this is a way to detect it, even if um, even if it's not showing up in clinical medicine. Uh, so it, it really holds some promise. Finding it in wastewater though does not mean. I mean, the wastewater is is low risk. We we do not see uh, wastewater causing illnesses in, in developed countries. Uh, you know, whenever there's a disaster, I get questions about, well, do we need to vaccinate sewage workers against hepatitis A or against ah, tetanus or sure. against any one of a number of disease? And the answer is no, because it's so diluted, you know, in, in, the waste stream that it, it really doesn't pose a risk to anybody. Uh, so that's not a concern, but, but it betokens some spread somewhere within the population.
1: Okay. And I, I understand this area where the polio is maybe circulating out north in New York. Uh, it's kind of an Orthodox Jewish community. It's kind of a tight-knit community. Have we seen other diseases spread in tight-knit communities like that?
2: Yeah. Yes, we have. I mean, the, uh, I remember, for example, a measles epidemic that primarily hit an under-vaccinated Amish community in Ohio. Uh, turns out that, you know, they didn't really have anything against vaccination, but they did not have a lot of contact with uh, modern medical systems, and so they weren't getting vaccines that, that others are, are recommended to get. Uh, similarly, in the, in the Orthodox Jewish community, um, there, there was a certain amount of opposition to vaccination or, or skepticism about vaccination. And uh, they have had measles outbreaks and mumps outbreaks in, in the Orthodox Jewish community in New York City. So um, it, it isn't uh, terribly surprising.
0: Well, and I think with the recent pandemic, there's been somewhat of a shift on vaccination rates. I know Andrew's mentioned to me in his office, it seems to be down, but do you have any numbers, Paul, on how childhood vaccinations are going now anywhere in the country versus pre-COVID?
2: Right. Uh, A lot of places, just about everywhere, saw decreases in rates of routinely administered vaccinations. Uh, Because, you know, during COVID, um, uh, people were encouraged, uh, you know, not to be in places where lots of other people were, uh, so people weren't going to their routine doctor appointments for a long time, uh, and and vaccination rates dropped. you know, one study, for example, found that uh, of the diphtheria tetanus pertussis series, uh, you know, you're supposed to get this vaccine at two months, four months, and six months of age. Everybody's supposed to get it. Uh, globally, the World Health Organization said uh, there was a 5% drop in uh, in kids getting that, that routine series. Uh, WHO estimated that 25 million uh, infants had missed out on vaccinations during the COVID-19 period. Some studies in the United States States uh, came up with sort of similar trends. Uh, uh, A study was produced in Michigan in the year 2020 saying that the uh, children five months of age who are up-to-date with all their recommended immunizations went from about two-thirds of kids that age uh, during 2016 through 2019, the pre-COVID years, uh, to about about 50% in May of 2020, so a significant drop in those infant vaccination rates. Um, And then uh, uh, another study looking at several hospital systems around the country uh, said that in September of 2019, 81% of uh, U.S. kids at seven months of age were up to date with their shots. That is, they got everything recommended at two, four, six months of age. Mm 81%. Eighty-one percent, but by September of 2020, that number was down to seventy-four percent. So, you know, we're looking at we're looking at five to ten percent uh, decreases in in uh, infant vaccination rates, and we know that some of those kids will never catch up.
1: Well, and Paul, you know, one of the things that's been really concerning for me to see uh, among my patients is that after COVID, I had folks who are still coming in for visits now, and they were previously vaccinating and they've elected to discontinue vaccines because, I don't know, I, I think they're just really uncomfortable with the whole COVID and COVID vaccine and the the relationships that some of them have to the aborted cells. Do you see that nationwide? I mean, I, I feel like in our community, we might see more of these breakout diseases. Now, you,
2: you may be seeing it earlier than they're showing up in, in national data. Uh, I I I am concerned about that possibility. I, you know, I think I'll have to wait to see uh, more data on what's happening in infants, for example, in, in the year 2021 uh, and, and 2022 to see if there's a rebound from that. But that would be very disturbing if, if we, uh, you know, started to see a lot more people refusing vaccinations. Um, I'm already worried about, you know, us being on the cusp with measles because measles is, you know, one of the most highly transmissible diseases and you really need very very high vaccination rates, you know, upwards of 95% to keep measles uh from from spreading once again in the United States. It really doesn't spread now because of um vaccination rates. You get a case or two, but it peters out. Uh, But if we drop, you know, even, you know, 5%, I I think we'll see sustained transmission of measles in the United States.
0: And what would be bad about that, Paul?
2: Well, uh, you know, we would have to undertake public health measures to try to control it. But uh, even in developed countries in recent years uh, that have let their vaccination rates sag, you know, you see a mortality rate for measles that's something like one in a thousand. Uh, you know, and if, if we see tens or hundreds of thousands of cases where we will see people dying of measles, uh, those diseases are still around. And until we eradicate them, uh, we'll be susceptible if we don't maintain our vaccination rates.
0: Well, let's go back to polio. You've already clarified that the the people most at risk are in communities where there's a a lower vaccination rate. It seems like it's not, it doesn't have to be as high a rate as uh, measles, like you said, 95% or more. Here, what is it, around 70% to have some kind of community-wide protection. Um, But um, how is polio spread? I mean, is this another uh, disease like uh, like COVID that can be respiratory or like TB or or is it different?
2: Uh, it's it's quite different actually. It's what we call fecal oral spread. So uh, listeners, brace yourself. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of
1: loves that term. Yeah. I'll bring it up sometimes, and uh, yeah. she's just ugh, you know. <laughs>
2: Yeah, th- there are a lot of pathogens that um, you know, viruses and bacteria and parasites that live in the intestines of human beings, and uh, and they don't seem to have too much trouble getting into the mouth of another human being, and that's how the diseases are spread and sustain themselves <laughs> through these through the centuries and millennia. And uh, poliovirus is is one such virus. Um, but but that means it's harder to spread than say covid you know it's not like getting coughed upon it it requires a breach in hygiene people who aren't washing their hands after using the toilet uh uh but you know swimming has been associated with it for example if you've got uh, toddlers in the swimming pool you know they may have an accident and uh, and, mm. and whatever they have is is traveling around the pool and uh, people can get exposed that way in the early 1950s when we had you know big epidemics of polio in the united states uh, parents were afraid to let their children swim in in public pools for that reason uh so it 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 spread through that route and um and it is more difficult to spread that way, but, but able to sustain itself.
1: So with just to clarify one thing as well, with the current polio vaccines in America, is there a risk of still getting polio?
2: Yes, um, there is, and and here's the problem. When you got the oral live attenuated polio vaccine, the kind that came with a one in eight hundred thousand risk on first dose of, of having a vaccine associated paralytic polio, uh, you got pretty durable immunity. Uh, but with the inactivated polio vaccine, the series of three injections that you get when, when at, at uh, during infancy and and toddlerhood. Uh, the immunity is, is not so durable. Your, your antibodies wane over time. And, yeah, and we think you need those antibodies in order to protect yourself against polio. Several years ago, I want to say it was 2012 or 13 or so, uh, the recommendation was made to add another dose of inactivated polio vaccine, during the preschool years to kind of boost kids before they went off to school. Uh, but immunity from that will probably wane as well and and we may be left with cohorts of adults uh, who are who are once again susceptible to polio. So that's not a problem if you don't have polio circulating and and uh, I, I would like to remind your listeners that, that uh, because of vaccine, polio was eradicated, not just from the United States, but from the entire Western hemisphere uh, back around 1994. So even the developed countries, the very poor countries uh, where hygiene you know, was not what it is, where sanitation isn't what it is here, uh, were able to get rid of polio through vaccination. But um, you know, now that we're on an IPV schedule, we're gonna have some susceptibility again.
0: All right. In our last five minutes, we want to cover a couple other diseases. Uh, Just one question. There's a new virus out of China, which has been transmitted apparently from shrews called Lange virus. What should we know about that?
2: Uh, pr- probably not too much. Uh, I don't see it as a as a big threat. Um, this is a virus, right, that seems to be transmitted from shrews to uh, human beings, uh, but is not spread person to person, and for that reason, you know, unlikely to catch fire uh, within human populations. Moreover, I'm I'm only aware of 35 cases that have occurred in China, and and no mortalities associated with it. So, so
0: what uh, other viruses with- should we be aware of, Paul? Um,
2: Well, you know, viruses are coming and going all the time. I would say one of the big ones on our radar screen is dengue virus. So this is a mosquito-borne virus uh, that has been um, prevalent in in tropical countries, including in in the Caribbean and and in Puerto Rico. And uh, it's transmitted by a mosquito called Aedes aegypti uh, and also, uh, to a lesser degree, by one called Aedes albopictus. Well, we have Aedes albopictus in the southeastern United States. So we have a competent vector, a transmitter of this virus uh, in the southeastern United States. Uh, Dengue has been growing worldwide, and it may be a function of, uh, you know, warming, warming weather, longer periods of uh, mosquitoes being active and biting. And of course, the more uh, biting, they do. The more infected people you have, and then the more infected people you have, the more it can spread. When the mosquito bites one person and goes to uh, another person, uh, I learned um, in my infectious disease training that uh, a, a traveler to you know to the tropics who's coming back from the United States who has a fever. Uh, the most common cause is dengue virus. Now, the one we really worry about is malaria because that's one that that you know is more likely to be lethal and that we can treat. We have anti-malarial right. drugs. We we don't have any uh, good treatment for dengue, uh, so you know you could diagnose it, but you couldn't treat it. But uh, but dengue was the number one one cause of fever.
1: Is there a good vaccine for that?
2: Well, there is a vaccine uh, that's come out. It's it's recommended uh, for for a small group of people, um, which is basically uh, kids who um, who uh, have already uh, developed antibodies to dengue virus. Uh, and and basically in in territories of the United States where it's circulating so pretty much Puerto Rico and Guam and uh, and it wouldn't wouldn't be recommended for uh, other Americans And the reason that they have to have antibodies uh, against it is that um, if you develop uh, I'm sorry people without antibodies against it because um, if you've had one dengue infection, this is a live attenuated vaccine and if you've had one infection and you get, uh, infected then by by dengue serotype three, there are four types one, two, three, four. Uh, then you could get a really bad infection called dengue hemorrhagic fever. This is from antibody mediated uh, disease enhancement uh, so it 's a really small group of people that would qualify for the vaccine
0: so in our last minute or so, Paul, what key lessons can we as Catholics learn from these recent outbreaks?
2: I would just say that um, you know diseases. You know, there's a lot of viruses and bacteria out there. Uh, we're used to seeing certain ones, but when we change anything, and we're changing constantly, we're liable to see new ones cropping up. You know, it's become very popular in the West to live in high desert areas. Well. Uh, High desert areas are prone to getting hantavirus infection. Uh, If we change our eating habits and start eating more alfalfa sprouts, we saw big outbreaks associated with uh, salmonella and E. coli O157 with alfalfa sprouts. Uh, Reforestation has been going on in the United States for decades. That means more deer. Deer carry ticks that carry Lyme disease. Uh, So we've seen more Lyme disease in the United States. So. You know, change is constant. We're constantly going to be finding new stuff that crops up or old things that increase. And, uh, you know, we need to have systems in place to detect them, to figure out how they're being transmitted and to take measures to stop
0: them. Paul Sieslak, that was wonderful. Thank you so much for being with us again on Dr. Doctor. I suspect we'll see you again in our future.
2: My pleasure, thanks.
0: And we are
1: back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the trivia question about zoonotic diseases. Tom, what do you got?
0: All right. Which one of the following five diseases is not spread or was not originally spread from an animal to a human being and then started circulating among human beings? A, COVID-19. B, Lyme disease. C, rabies. D, plague, the black death. Or E, influenza B. And Andrew, I'm sure you were all over this one.
1: I did. I knew this one. I was really happy. Whenever I get yours, I'm always a little surprised and really happy. So the answer was was
0: E. Influenza B. So the current vaccine against influenza includes A and B. And influenza A uh, actually was originally uh, from other animals, like like swine, like pigs. But influenza B uh, is only uh, between humans. Uh, COVID-19, we know it started in either bats or pangolins or something else uh, in China. Uh, Lyme disease, palsies like mentioned. Uh, This tick that lives on deer primarily carries it. Rabies, of course, we're well aware where that comes from, Um, Mm -hmm. mostly dogs. And then plague, uh, fleas that live on a number of different small and medium-sized mammals. But in the Black Death was the black rat. So Andrew, we heard a lot from Paul about new diseases. What are your top three takeaways from this interview? Yeah,
1: I guess number one would be in regard to the monkeypox. Uh, the punchline would be to uh, practice chastity, and you will not get monkeypox.
0: Amen <laughs> um, to that. Quite. That's pretty quite much simple. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> if you're if you're doing that, you're not going to get monkeypox. So that's a blessing. And, and, and we uh,
0: apologize I- for. Uh, you know, talking about some things that aren't too comfortable, but it's good to know the truth about this, that the vast majority of people are not at risk for it. Now you know.
1: Yes. Thank goodness. And uh, number two, I guess in regard to polio, the punchline is that polio is spreading. They commented on one case in New York, but the evidence, as Paul was kind of mentioning, suggests that there is a group spread. One in 200 people get paralyzed. So, uh, that leads me to point number three is uh, if if you've fallen behind on the vaccines, I'd really consider getting vaccinated, especially with these diseases, at least in my estimation. Unfortunately, we're going to probably see more of these as as people get less comfortable with vaccinations, people miss more doses and don't think much of it. That's when these diseases come back. And so if
0: you're not up to date, I encourage you to make an appointment, okay. get up to date. And as, as we covered a couple years ago, the company Sanofi Pasteur, which made a lot of the polio vaccines, stopped producing their vaccine made in uh, cells from aborted fetal tissue. And they're now made in animal cells and completely ethical. So this is a very good thing. You can now easily get polio vaccine that has no relationship to abortion. Well, and, and Tom, you
1: probably see patients too who had paralysis from when they were a yes. kid and they got polio. And I see those folks, too. So it's just something I hope never comes back. Amen
0: to that. Hey, thanks for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor. You can find this episode, all our old episodes, on our website, drdoctor.org. Just click on episode archive near the top, and you can search over 280 episodes by either guest or topic.
1: And if you didn't know this, we have a video version of our podcast. This would be a great episode to listen to on video because Paul Seaslack has a dandy bow tie. And so (laughs) you should just click on the YouTube link at the top of the drdoctor.org homepage. And if you have any good ideas for a show, click where it says submit a question. Give us a good idea. We're into good ideas. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally. And we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor.
2: The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Doctor Show and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Plus, find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org.